I'm Mary Portes, and this is The Kindness Economy, a podcast that looks at the new values driving the businesses of tomorrow. People, planet, and profit. In that order. It's the future. Are you ready for better? With two older brothers and a sister who were always a step ahead of me, I couldn't wait to grow up when I was a child. Each year, my mother would line us up in the kitchen to measure us against the wall, and over the years it became littered with those tiny little black marks showing each of us progressing upwards in the world. And every time I'd wait breathlessly to see how much I'd grown. But the mistake I made, of course, is that back then, like so many of us, I thought growing up would be it. I believed that I'd get to a point physically, emotionally and mentally. That was fixed. I'd be grown. (laughs) Now, of course, I realise how wrong I was. My body stopped growing, but it continued to change over the years. Amen to childbirth and menopause. Emotionally and mentally too. I, I mean, I've almost been in a constant process of evolution. And so my lived experience is what makes this quote by the economist Manfred Max Neef chime so powerfully. Every living system in nature grows up to a certain point and stops growing. As a person, it comes to a point when you stop growing, but you continue to develop yourself. Development has no limits. Businesses too are increasingly understanding the difference between growth and development. For so long, we were taught that financial growth at any cost was the number one priority. But people like economist Kate Rayworth are questioning that. And if you heard me talk with her a while ago, you'll know that she believes, as are many economists now, that unchecked economic growth is as damaging to us collectively as unchecked growth is to our own individual bodies. The growth economy is about material comfort, backward analysis and disruption that creates maximum short-term results. It is unthinkable and it is insatiable. But the kindness economy is about social and financial impact, looking forwards as well as backwards, disruption and reimagination. Notice the ands in all that. Yes, there are very real business targets we must all hit, but also we must add functions to embrace. Stemming unceasing growth doesn't mean stagnation. It's about thriving healthily and in balance, nourishing the roots of your business as much as the branches reaching ever higher. The businesses of tomorrow will flourish in this space. I'm Mary Portas, and this is The Kindness Economy. This economy is brought to you and supported by Dell Technologies. Now, who do I have coming down the Zoom pipe today from Dell? Hi, Mary. I'm Paula Shi, and I lead the business development team in EMEA and now in APJ. Oh, what does APJ stand for? Asia Pacific Japan. I love all these little, what are they called when you do letters? I'm so rubbish at remembering that. Acronyms. Acronyms. Tell me. What do Dell do? What are you doing that just is part of the kindness economy? 
It's a company that has end-to-end technology solutions from your starting point at students, so when you're starting your academic life, all the way to uh, large corporate solutions. So small businesses, consumers, all the technology solutions end-to-end. So from PCs to services to uh, servers, networking, all the very complex technology architecture that is needed for businesses. Nothing's too small. And let me tell you, from the small come the great always. And that's where change happens. Thanks, Paula. To find out more, go to dell.co.uk forward slash small biz. So later on, I'll be speaking to Edzard Vanderwick, who founded Sheep Inc. But before that, I'm in a very special shop that's got a very warm place in my heart. I'm sure you'll hear buzzy sounds around me. This is the Teddington shop of Mary's Living and Giving, and it's run by an extraordinary woman, Jackie, who was one of the very first managers, I think, was the first manager of this shop, were you? First manager of this shop. And it is the most profitable in the group of Mary's Living and Giving shops we have for Save the Children. 12 years ago, when I came up with this concept, I wanted us to look at charity shops in a new way, to look at them as places where people didn't just dump and chuck unloved stuff, but actually started a social movement around recycling, upcycling, creating community hubs, places where people can connect and where people can give their time to give back to the community and to those who have less than us. So I'm so pleased. I am chatting to Jackie, who's leaving her last day. Is it tomorrow, Jackie? No, it's a week on Friday. A week on Friday. Um, But Jackie, just talk to me about what this has meant to you and and what you've done and what it's done to the community. I know that's a big, big, big question, but you're so eloquent whenever I talk to you and always excited about it. Well, I don't know. I started off as a volunteer in Barnes and actually from day one loved, loved the concept. Um, And it was very much the ethos and philosophy that you had actually set out. I love everything about a high street. I love everything about community. And these shops are actually all about kindness because without kindness, we wouldn't have uh, amazing volunteers and extraordinary donations that we get. Can I talk to you about the volunteers? Because I remember when I very first looked at the charity sector, sort of the average age of the volunteers was all in their, their sort of mid-70s. There was, a, there was a, a, my parents' generation who had that sense of duty of giving back. And I've just walked in here today and you've just introduced me to someone who's just done her degree in fashion, who's just come out of college. And to talk to me about what, you, what she's what, doing. Well, what I absolutely adore about the shops is actually we're not ageist at all. We have, in fact, I t- uh, specifically phoned two of our volunteers to see if they'd come in, both in their 80s, and they are phenomenal, <laughs> phenomenal. Um, Helen used to be a Liberty model, and Myra used to work at Harrods, and then actually went on to run her own business. And what she does in two hours is more than a lot of volunteers do in eight hours. She comes in, and I'm sure she looks at my down her nose at me and thinking, how on earth did you get a manager job? Look how she's her nails aren't painted. I have painted them. Um, but so we're not ageist. And at one point we used to have Duke of Edinburgh uh, volunteers from the age, actually the youngest one was an eight-year-old who came in with her mother, who was absolutely lovely. You know, they want to come and work here because it's exciting. You've shifted 
what charity shops were. You know, there was something about places where stock went to die, whereas this is about where it's alive and living, which is why I called it living and giving. It's about how you live, the people giving their time and people giving back by giving their stuff in. And so you've just attracted such a wide range of people to come and be part of your community, your team. Well, what was quite interesting is when I first came, I came as a volunteer to this shop, but it didn't have a it didn't have a manager. So I kind of came became a sort of volunteer manager as, as by default. And actually, a lot of the community were quite anti us to start off with, although they loved your name. A lot of people didn't want yet another bloody charity shop, and I'm sorry to say that, but actually there's a lot of charity shops that I still would not want to be associated with, yes. and I wouldn't. I think a lot of charities have a long way to go. Just explain that, because I think what, what it was was charity shops were seen as the death of a high street. If you saw a charity shop and a chicken shop, you're like, oh God, this one's desperate. And we wanted to change that. And when, when we opened, we had people queuing, do you remember? Yes. Yes, so there were people queuing because obviously they'd heard about you and they wanted to come along and get a bargain. But a lot of the fellow sh shops were actually a bit anti-us and a bit hostile. I know there was a lovely shop up the road and she was actually really curt to me to start off with. But then I went and tried to chat to her and I mean, I kind of spent a lot of time on the shop floor trying to get to know customers, volunteers, somebody like Andrea who came on board who Hi, obviously Andrea, weren't... Say hello. Hi, Shout hello. out Andrea. I started as a volunteer and ended up working with this lovely lady. Gosh, eight years only we've been together. I'm a huge believer that kindness is contagious. Who doesn't appreciate somebody who's kind? And you remember, you remember people that are kind to you. And I think this this shop would not exist without kindness. The kindness, I mean, it, it, ripple, it ripples away from this shop. It ripples, but this is the heart of it. And I honestly can say that this is probably one of the most loved shops in Teddington. The amount of people, and even when they've heard I'm going, they they obviously sad that I'm going, but they also say, the, the shop's not closing, is it? Because it's, it's somewhere where... And everybody is valued, whether they come to shop. And, you know, we have elderly people that we keep, like, old DVDs, that they take them back to the, their homes so that they can share it. We have kids that come... From, so it's not that we're just looking after people that are big spenders. And we do get big spenders. We get the people who are after the Chanel handbags and things like that. But actually, we do sell beautiful things, and it's lovely to get the extension of a life of things that are pre-loved. And people get bargains. Those bargains aren't cheap things they are things that are lovely that are that are going to last but they're just getting them at better value than they would do if they bought it but i think fashion is not at the heart really of what we do it's the humanity and the kindness that radiates from here and it's also the whole thing about being ethical and sustainability and and supporting your high street being part of the community that's why i call it little heartbeat we lose something that's just intrinsic yeah. to as we to how we live as humans. This, we're, we're neurobiologically wired to connect. Well, this is an absolute beauty, and thank you, Jackie. I thank you from the bottom of my heart. I've heard some of your podcasts, and I so believe in this, that in terms of sort of kind of budgets and things like that, I so seldomly am driven by the money in terms of my focus isn't the money, it's about doing the job well. It's about understanding, it's understanding your customer, understanding who's coming to shop. And actually, when you do all of those things well, the money just comes in and things... Exactly, instance, Jackie. So, you know, we've got to write a book on this. This is exactly what I say. And the great businesses I'm speaking to, I love the way that you're just so, you know, the way you talk about this and, and it is, comes from a place of instinct and love. 
If you create a place that's from your heart, full of instinct and love, the money comes. So that's why you put people first, planet, and then profit. You sum it up. Fashion. Well, it's a massive topic, isn't it? Textile waste, representation, employment practices. There's a lot to reckon with. And today we're going to hone in on one of them, climate impact and sustainability. And to do this, I'm talking to Edzard Vanderwick of Sheepink, the world's first carbon negative knitwear brand. While a lot of long established fashion companies are looking backwards at how they've done things and forwards to how they can do better, Sheepink, which launched in 2019, is being built from the ground up on environmentally respectful principles. The knitwear it produces doesn't harm the environment because it's chlorine free and it creates no waste. Sheep Inc. also uses solar energy, innovative regenerative farming techniques and offsetting to create more carbon than it uses. And then there's the company's policy of radical transparency. You can see the manufacturing history and carbon footprint of your garment just by scanning its tag. And you can even adopt a sheep when you buy a sheep ink product and you get updates on your phone on how it's doing. My sheep's called Walter, by the way. A bit boring, aren't I, naming it after my dog? Accountability is where change starts, says Sheep Inc. co-founder Edzvard Vandervik. The sheep is the kind of ongoing engagement piece when you're continuously kind of involved with the story behind your sweater. Redefining our relationship with what we buy has been a thing for a while now. When it comes to food, the rise of organic, fair trade and zero waste packaging means we're far more conscious of the impact of what we put in our bodies. But how do we create a radical shift in our understanding of what we put on them? It's always part of your thinking, kind of like behaving responsibly, being responsible, but not part of my work life. And so I started in film and... I suppose as I was kind of growing my career in film, we started to do a lot of fashion projects. And really the genesis of stepping into the film world was an interest in communication and branding. And also understanding that fashion could be a real um, tool for kind of change, I suppose. Like it has, it has such a power in how, we, how people kind of relate to fashion and power as a communication tool that I got very interested in how you could create fashion brands that could bring about change. And so actually, although my first brand was a women's underwear brand, it was a hosiery brand, the idea really there came from a place of how do you change, um, how, how do you change the perception of the female body in in the underwear space, which was still very much dominated by this Victoria's Secrets of this world, which was a very kind of simplified aesthetic around around body and around sexuality, and so that was really the piece that got me interested in setting up a brand in fashion was actually that central piece, which was how do you kind of change the narrative around. Um, women's underwear branding and how do you just kind of make a step change there? Because you stop on that because it is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, we were I'm thinking about that. How not that long ago it was one body, one shape, and mm-hmm. very sensual and sexual, yep. and you know, actually more through the gaze of of the male eye that totally, was being yep. sold. And and body and body is is kind of object rather than subject. Yes. I think that was the real central yeah. problem. So yours was around that product very much on the, the body image, diversity, and how women should embrace whatever they have and feel good about themselves. Totally. And I think that was kind of when I really, I suppose, realized the kind of, again, the... What was it called? What the was it called? Heist, Heist Studios. Yeah, yeah, still going. Um, that's when I kind of, I suppose, really realized the, the, the impact that fashion can have in, in a cultural conversation, right? Mm. And... 
you know, since then, a lot of other underwear brands have popped up and that aesthetic has very much changed. Victoria's Secret has recently also said that they're going to change. They're getting rid of the, the angels, etc. So once again, I thought it's exciting what fashion can do to play its part in changing the dialogue. And as I was growing the business, um, you know, even though I was very proud of what we were creating with, with Heist, I did start to also recognize how terrible the fashion industry was behaving when it came to the environment. And I think what really shocked me even more is when I used to go to the pub and see friends and talk about, you know, how much, how much impact the fashion industry had and how little they knew about it. And you used to throw out the stats, you know, kind of one of the top polluting industries on the planet. And you always got the same response, which was normally, a, really, <laughs> is it that bad? And people simply didn't realize. And you talk about the change that's happened with the kind of body diversity in fashion, but it's also amazing how quickly the conversation around fashion's impact has changed. Because these conversations I was having, I suppose, around 2016, 2017, but, you know, four or five years ago, people didn't actually, you know, they weren't aware of it. And I got really interested at that point, left heist at that point to go, okay, how do you now set something up that really addresses this topic of, of fashion's behavior, but also kind of comes at it from two angles. One of them is how do you actually make the company itself kind of really operate in as environmentally friendly way as possible? And how do you, how are you innovative in that place? Um, and then secondly, how do you get the consumers to become more aware? Like how do they become more aware around their, their buying behavior? How do they become more aware around their the impact of their personal choices. Um, and so that was basically the whole genesis of Sheep Inc. was really coming at it from those two those two angles. I mean, I'm lucky enough to have one of your cardigans which are actually delicious to wear. I know that's not a word I would order, but it, <laughs> they really are. I actually love the, the, the feel of it. Because of that, part of your brand is a commitment that clothes last a lifetime. Yeah. But it goes against so much of what has been sold to us over the past few decades of consuming, dumping and consuming again. I know you offer a repair, you know, service, for instance, very similar to it. You're wearing a Patagonia hat. <laughs> Big respect for the man there. Um, what start do you even think? And I know this is slightly tangential to what you're doing, but how are we ever going to get past this fast fashion and this more, more new, new, new? Because it, it is a marketing spin and what we've mm -hmm. bought into it. It's become a cultural acceptance that that is, you know, we will wear, if I get that and that's new, I'm going to be on trend. Have you any idea of how that can be changed? I think it does come down to this awareness piece. Um, you know, as much as also, once again, encouragingly, I think a lot of brands are starting to change their behavior. Even some of the fast fashion brands are now starting to lean into sustainability, which is obviously promising. But I do think a lot of it also comes from the consumer side of just becoming more aware of what they're buying and, and just having that kind of that moment where, where that gets switched on, which I think, by the way, happened in the food space. It did. You know, Brilliantly. we start to become very, very aware of kind of what we're, we look for organic eggs if we're, if we're not vegan. You know, we do tend to kind of check where stuff comes from and that almost becomes automatic in the buying in the, at the moment of purchase or the moment of selecting. And I think that's the bit that needs to happen in, in fashion is that we just need this, this, just this very quick sense check before we buy something. It's a single question, right? What impact has this garment had? Asking the brand, can you tell me what impact it has? And should they not be able to provide that information, then you have to make a choice. You know, do I then buy it or do I not then buy it? But they're not obliged to, that's the thing, that information. Yeah. If we go into stores or online, that that is not readily available. There are brands using it to say, listen, mm -hmm. I am this brand. This is what we stand for. And I guess we're coming from 
Because the old fight and argument that I get time and time again is that fast fashion, cheap fashion makes it democratic and that everybody can afford it. But again, like food, we need to buy better and less when it comes to fashion. Yeah, and I think there's that thing of value versus cost where it's, you know, the the amount of value you get, you know, obviously my argument would be that we started 130 pounds for a sweater, which I know is expensive for a lot of people. But the amount of value that sits within that product is is far larger than a than a cheaper fast fashion item, which has been designed to to be worn a handful of times, right? And that's also where you look at the kind of the, the recent change in buying behaviour, where depending on which stat you pick, but let's say it's anywhere between garments is worn between five and seven times on average before it's disposed of. Now, obviously, on a per wear basis, is is you have to work it out. Even if you're spending £40 on something, then you wear it five times. That's a couple of pounds per wear, right? Whereas in if you have a garment like we do, which is, again, more expensive, but can be worn over generations, not just for a single generation, then obviously you'd look at it on a per wear basis and it becomes cheaper than the fast fashion item. So I think that's, that's exactly what I was talking to the guys at Pucker Tea. Yeah. You know? And also, it's not only that. It's, you know, their tea bags are more expensive than your, your regular you know, tea bag, but, you know, it is one that, A, you can use it a couple of times, but also it's what it does to the land, the money and the cost of repairing, you know, the farming, which you all know about, the repair that goes back in that we don't see, which is coming out of our planet and affecting our well-being and the cost of our tax money going back into repair what's been damaged by by the processes of creating these products. Yeah, totally. And I think that's where, you know, I think this is going to be the real eye-opener over the next decades is how much cheaper it would be to now implement, for instance, in America, the Green New Deal than us having to rectify all the damage that's going to be done due to environmental impact. I'm reading here that um, and, uh, that you part of your journey was uh, working with a think tank, the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, to look at why people weren't necessarily mm-hmm. buying sustainable fashion. Right? Yeah. Was it a case of the fact that they weren't aware? You talked about this back in 2016, this, mm-hmm. the impact. People you know, I mean, we're not, they, they were yeah. probably sort of within your group of quite aware individuals switched on and they weren't was that the biggest thing that came out of this research well the biggest thing that came out of the research was really that people aren't again aren't conditioned to ask questions because fashion hasn't been providing them so they don't expect to get an answer therefore they don't ask the question and that's the big change piece that needs to happen is that again that question needs to be asked the interesting thing that then can happen is that you know once consumers start demanding it the brands are going to have to change their behavior incredibly quickly. Otherwise, they're simply going to start going out of business. But that's why it also needs to be driven from the consumer side. I love this. You, you, you call what you do biophilic design, and that involves everything from sourcing wool from regenerative farms mm-hmm. to solar-powered knitting machines. And you even feed the sheep food that makes them burp less. I love that. <laughs> or blow off less, probably. Yeah. And produce less methane. Because that's a big issue, isn't it, with cows? And yeah. looking. How did you start to put this incredibly complex production process together? And was there a time where you thought, oh, stop it, this is just too difficult? No, I think that it was an interesting process. We started with my co-founder, Michael, didn't actually come from the fashion space. He came from the fintech space, very analytical, his background. And it was interesting, his kind of approach to fashion was as a total outsider. You know, he, he has no real interest necessarily in fashion, but he did find it a fascinating space where you could bring about change. And 
So he kind of came at it from a very outsider looking in perspective, right? Where he went, why are things done like this? How can you bring about, you know, why can't we do things differently? And I think that was the real power as we were setting up is that I had him by my side, basically helping me kind of like really interrogate how things have been done before. Because obviously I'd been operating at that point in the fashion industry for a good couple of years. So I was slightly more set in my ways too. And he was really the one who came in and went, okay, listen, let's interrogate every part of the um, supply chain and figure out how we can do it better. And if we can't do it better now, how can we then start working towards doing it better in the future? You've made me think of something there, which is just brilliant, because we, we work like that here at Porter. So we have what we call naive experts, mm-hmm. experts in yeah. certain area, but naive within our industry. And they come in a different way of looking at things. And we harness that. And, you know, how would you look at retail tomorrow? What could you make that's different? Because most people are very safe. They've been in the business and you employ people that have been in the business and that's how you grow the next and they got the ladder and you end up with just the same bunch of people moving mm-hmm. around different businesses mm-hmm creating much the same stuff and yet here's an opportunity and um it's a quote i put in my book by gershom Scholem on the plastic hours where you have time to make change is an opportunity to make change and it just seems that what you've done and bringing in your partner who comes from a different you know expert field you've created something dynamic and very changeful yeah and, it's, and i think that you know the great thing is because that mentality was also set from the beginning, it's continued in the business. You know, it's like we're never satisfied because I think that's also the big thing. You know, we're obviously proud in what we've achieved so far and in the setup of our supply chain, which has been a lot of work to get it to this point. But we also know it's not perfect. You know, it can always be improved. And so there are always elements that sit there within the supply chain that for us that we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to innovate on and trying to make um, less impact. And that because that mentality was really set out from the beginning, it's like, how do we do things better? That's the mentality that's not really set I in the business. I love that line. That's what we talk about in the kindness economy. How, how can, do you want to do better? You know, how can you do things better? Once you put that out there, it doesn't mean, it's an organic process, isn't it? There is no 10-point plan on this. Yeah. We're all learning all the time. But this carbon negative bit, I just love. Your sheep are in New Zealand. So mm-hmm. let's talk me how this works. The sheep are in New Zealand. Your wool spun in Italy, and the products are made in Portugal. So that does mean travel miles. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about making sure you're creating less carbon than you took? Because, I mean, how, how much do you have to interrogate every person involved in your process to make sure that they're doing this and not, not just talking the talk? So, so we don't actually offset to get a carbon negative impact. So that's, that's, I suppose, where the real innovation comes, is that there is no offsetting to reduce impact. So the way that it works is that we work with farms that adopt regenerative farming methods. Um, and that means that they have ways of kind of cultivating land and um, ensuring that there's rich biodiversity, making sure that the sheep move around enough, that the land has time to rest, which means that the plants have kind of basically get longer roots and they can sequester more carbon. And New, and, New Zealand's better than that than us. Yeah. And so even though it sounds totally illogical that you would be moving kind of through various countries and and the environmental impact of that, because we source wool from these particular farms, they actually have a far, that has a far more positive carbon impacts, basically. So it sequesters far more CO2 from the atmosphere by taking it from those farms, because it's also an issue of scale. Like these farms in New Zealand are so vast to basically use to sequester CO2. So basically adopting that method, we, we source the wool from these farms that then has a negative CO2 impact at source. 
and again, that's all natural impact. Um, for our hoodie, for instance, which we just launched, it's a minus 22 kilogram um, impact per hoodie of CO2. And then we move it through the rest of our supply chain and try and basically uh, manufacture as sustainably as possible as we go through it. So all our yarn mills run on renewable energy, on solar power, our manufacturer runs on solar power. We make them using these 3D knitting machines that have zero waste production. Did then, you have to get those made, the knitting machines? Or? No, they, well, there's an amazing Japanese company called Shimaseki who, who produced them. And then we ship everything from our logistics center here in the UK, which is also totally carbon neutral. And if you talk about transport, I think this has one, been one of the big challenges because the, um, I suppose the challenge that we always get, which is the one that you've just flagged, is how is it possible that you can have a positive impact if you're moving between all these countries? But actually, transport is a smaller part of the problem. Um, so th- so the, where is the biggest impact coming from then? So the were. biggest impact normally comes from the raw material stage, especially right. when it comes to wool. So if you would look at our hoodie, if it was not being, if there was no natural sequestration happening on farm, you would have about a 14, 15 kilogram impact. And then manufacturing as well can also have a hugely, you know, kind of a hugely detrimental environmental impact as well. So, so this gets down to everything that we're looking at in fashion really here. We have to really look at the way we're creating product from source. That's where the big, big change is going to come. Yeah. And I think the most important bit is actually analyzing your supply chain so doing a life cycle assessment so you understand exactly where the biggest impact currently comes from in your supply chain and then going okay what are the real red flags here like where can we where should we be tackling the most impact because if you've done an analysis of a a kind of a traditional wool sweater you would understand that transport actually isn't the biggest problem it is actually the raw material stage and so Mm -hmm. that's where you need to put your initial focus is how do you get the raw material stage as you know how do you minimize impact there as much as possible but for another industry for another um, product made out of another material it may be a totally different pressure point within your supply chain it may come down to manufacturing that's where you have the biggest impact so that's where you need to kind of focus all your energy so i think that's the really important piece that we've taken away from this is it's really about doing an analysis of what you're going to create or what you're creating, looking at every step of manufacturing and then going, okay, now how can I have, how, how can I lessen the impact at these various stages? And uh, did you make mistakes along the way? Because I love um, when you talk to me for my book, Rebuild, and I'm going to quote back a bit of what you said, which I really connected with. You start with a purpose to be a fashion brand of tomorrow. And that doesn't mean we have to solve it today. It has to remain a continuous drive and ambition to be always moving in that direction. Continuously interrogate what you're doing and understand that it's a journey, not a destination. What have you changed anything since you you started after realizing maybe that you made a misstep? We've been lucky that I don't think we've made missteps, but we have refined, especially around our manufacturing, various processes. So we've, for instance, the yarn treatment that we use is now totally chlorine free, which was not the case in our initial yarn treatment. That was, I suppose, a big change that we made. Um, And that we're continuously kind of evolving that treatment because traditionally a lot of chemicals are used as, as you treat wool. And then tightening up the farms that we work with, making sure that we really work with only a limited amount of farms that really sit at the forefront of regenerative farming. That was for us very important. Um, and I think the next big piece you know, that, we're, that we're looking to tackle basically is transport. Because even though, as I mentioned, it's not the biggest part of the carbon footprint in our supply chain, that's what we really want to tackle next. You know, We still don't do anything by air, so it's still all by sea, which is, of course, lesser impact than by air. But still, we see that as the next big challenge. It's like, how do we start to um, 
How do we start to improve impact there? I mean, I was, I was talking on the radio show this morning and um, Tom was talking about, you know, the car industry having to change and that, that it makes cars more expensive. And I suppose, of course, of course, in the early stages of when you innovate, which is what you're doing, mm. this is expensive. And I suppose when we look at your entry-level jumpers, they cost 130 Now, I'm with you. And, you know, obviously I'm in a in a in a, a way able to afford this in, in my life now because I believe if you buy less and it lasts. You know, I grew up on this on a on a lesser level. My mother darned. You know, I actually no. found myself, I'm telling you this now, I really I've just thought about it. I found myself doing that the other the day with a little silk uh, camisole top that I had. And I thought, I'm gonna actually sew that back it had ripped. And it was really actually really <laughs> sweet moment of me and my little eight-year-old son and uh, we were just sitting he was having to do reading for his home and I was darning and I just thought my god I've suddenly gone back for 50 years to my mother doing this you know it was the make do and mend so I'm I'm you know how do we I suppose how are there people that the people buying into your brands are they the ones who are already on board or are you trying to reach those who aren't and if so how are you doing that because you talked about the messaging. It's knowledge, isn't it? It's knowledge. Yeah. It kind of comes from both sides, basically. I think, first of all, to address what you were just saying about darning your garment, like that adds emotional value to it, right? That adds story to it. And Massively. I think that's, that's what we've, to a certain extent, maybe lost a bit with this idea mm. of fashion being so disposable, mm. is that you tend to have these items and then they don't have a lot of emotional value. Therefore, you don't have a problem kind of getting rid of them. And I think that's an important change that needs to happen is that, people need to start buying stuff that they imbue with more emotional value and therefore you want to keep it and therefore you want to almost pass it on. I mean, I inherited sweaters from my dad that he'd had for ages. And, you know, at that point, they become items that have an emotional value sitting in your wardrobe. Um, so I think that's really, that's really important. That, that I know this sounds happens. really terrible, but is that a class thing? And, you know, is yeah. that a wealthy thing that, you know, how do we not sound like, you know, this wealthy you know, and yeah, we, are, totally, we, we yeah. lead a, a relatively yeah. wealthy life. How do we not sound like that and, and embrace those, the generation and people who are going, I can't afford that and I wasn't left that, so what will be, what will be right for me? How do we do that? That's the big thing here, isn't it? And, it's, and I'm not, well, it's, we haven't got the answer. I think a lot of it is messaging, isn't it? Yeah. And actually taking away the, half the crap of, you know, your life will be better if you buy more stuff and you can put five pictures up on Instagram or TikTok. Yeah, well, I think also to address that same topic is the wealthy are also responsible for most of the environmental impacts. They're the people who travel the most, they're the people who buy the most. So they are also the category that almost needs to have the biggest wake-up call. If you look at how the kind of like the CO2 impact per person is, is um, changes as you kind of like go through the wealth categories, like it's, it's the top percentage, right, who are the most most impactful when it comes to um, how they're affecting the environment. So that's also the argument that that's the group that definitely needs to change their their behavior the most. Um, and when you hear the luxury brands, when you hear the chief mm-hmm. exec of Gucci and you hear them carrying, saying we are going to be sustainable, how true do you think that's going to be? Well, I think the problem with a lot of those claims is that the roadmap is simply not clear. They don't actually lay out, this is exactly how we're going to do it. So it's great that they're putting that milestone in the ground, but they're not actually, it's not very clear how they're going to get there. So it's almost kind of passing the buck and kicking the bucket down the road. The, the additional problem is also the, the um, this is an example that's been used a lot in the press and by people recently, is 
the commitment, you see the financial commitment that they're putting towards environmental issues. And the second, for instance, the Notre Dame went up in flames. The amount of financial commitment that was given by the top fashion houses was vastly exceeded anything that they'd put into environmental causes over the last years. And that for me was a real kind of, that I found totally crazy. This was an iconic part of Paris and all the the fashion brands. You're right, they put huge amounts. They put huge, you know, and and of course, it's it's great that they put the money towards it to to make sure that it it kind of, (laughs) it could be maintained. But at the same time, it also shows that they're totally out of whack with the fact that they're giving such a small percentage of their um, of their earnings, right, to to um, to environmental causes. And we dedicate five percent of our revenue, so not of our earnings, but of our revenue to biodiversity projects. And that for us was a real statement piece. We were like, listen, if we can, as a young brand, commit to five percent of our revenue going into biodiversity projects, and all the projects that we invest in are. Um, basically uh, sourced and, and, um, and audited by, by a third party, also by Professor Mark Maslin, who's head of climatology at UCL. And through that, we're able to have an additional positive impact. You then look at the amount that is committed by a caring or by an LVMH, and it's, it's tiny, yeah. right? Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's a percentage, it's a fraction of a percentage of their, actually, of their earnings. And that, for me, is also where there just seems to be a bit of a kind of like a mixed message there where it's like, hey, we're going to do everything possible. We're going to get there by 2030, 2035. My answer to that is a bit, yes, but what can you do today? And today, if you cannot totally overhaul your supply chain, which, which I they won't be able to do overnight. Which, which, which they, exactly, which they won't be able to do overnight. So it's going to be a complex kind of operational change for them. I understand that. And that's the piece they need to work on. But then you don't have an argument against actually having a dedicating more financial resources at the moment to biodiversity projects. Um, you seem to, and what I love about the brand, is actually creating a real emotional connection. Because I, I got quite emotional picking my little sheep. <laughs> <laughs> I have been checking out Walter, my sheep, okay. named after my dog. He's <laughs> by your feet now. <laughs> yeah, people really, people really engage with that piece because it, it circles back again to that where we started, which is how do you get people to care? And... It's not just about transparency. I think transparency is the big buzzword in fashion at the moment, but it's not just about transparency. It is about building that emotional connection. It's about making the, the mm-hmm. item feel more valuable and also just bringing people back in touch with the story behind the things that they wear. And, you know, the, the adopt the sheep aspect for us was a key part of that. It's like, how do you get people to think back to the story behind it? How do you think back to the genesis of this thing? You know, because we don't tend to pick garments off the shelves and try it on and go... God, what is the story behind this? We don't create that mental picture. And that for us was the, the idea behind this sheep adoption piece. It was like you actually give people something to, to kind of imagine in their heads, right? And I do. It's you lovely. Know. Because it's also something about it that's very kind of, I know this might not be the right word, but it's very um, elemental in yeah. a way, isn't it? Because I feel that this is... This has come from that animal. This is the circle of life in some ways. So it's come from this animal. I know the animal. I know where it is. I'm wearing it. There's a mutual respect for the planet, for the well-being of the animal and the people who are farming it. It just feels like a, a really fuzzy, warm thing to do. I'm great. Well, I'm glad you, I'm glad you had that. You. Fuzzy, warm. <laughs> fuzzy and warm for, yeah. your, for your wonderful... But, is it, but it is that thing. It's like we tend to disassociate like the material we from do. the animal. You know, It's like wool doesn't mean sheep in our heads always, right? We, we tend to kind of disconnect those two things. So that was, again, the other thing. It's like you couldn't have said it better, but it, it is that thing of bringing it, bringing those two things 
back together and having them having them once again be associated with a with with a living thing, right? In this case, well, it's like the question I asked you earlier on. We disassociate. We know now what we put into our bodies, mm-hmm. but we don't think about. We disassociate what we put on our bodies. What are the fabrics? Who's made this? What yeah. is that doing? And I think there is something that actually, when you do put on something beautiful that's either been made in a beautiful way, there is something very you know connected to yeah. deeper, a deeper sense of yourself as well as your outward appearance. Yeah. Very, very, um, we're going into high ground here. So, <laughs> well, that's also what makes it last. And that's the other big thing is like the longer that we keep things, the less environmentally impactful it is, right? So it all plays into that same thing. It's like that building of that emotional connection, which makes you want to keep it longer, which means you lessen your impact. Do you think um, that these massive fashion businesses can be a force for good? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm looking at people like H&M or... Mm-hmm. We talk about the big luxury brands, of course. They're on board. They say they're on board, and they operate such a massive scale. Do you think that they are able to do that potential for good, or is it just that the math doesn't work out when you get to that sort of scale? Well, it's a really tricky question. I, I think vilifying also doesn't help no. in this space. you know. And I think they also understand a lot of these big brands are starting to understand that that is what the consumer is shifting towards. So it is also going to be imperative for their business that they start to behave better because they understand that that's what the modern consumer is going to want from from a business so it's a complex it's a complex question and i think everybody almost has to answer that question for themselves you know it's like when they buy something do you buy something from h&m's conscious cotton range and think okay i'm buying something that is more sustainably made but i'm actually feeding a bigger machine that still has impact you know that it's, it's a complex question that exactly you know. and they're, they're all starting the sustainable ranges yeah. we're seeing that across everyone i think one of the things you know um i mean there's so many so many problems facing fashion right now um why i have the kindness economy and i say people planet and profit in that order is that we also believe there's real impact on people mm-hmm. too within this um like often low-paid women particularly sometimes even children working in garment factories in places like india or morocco um to the issue of representation which you talked about in advertising and it's it's all too much for any one business to take on or or do you think there is every possibility that we should be matching environmental concerns with concerns for people too I think it has to go hand in hand. It's ethical behavior. You know, that's what yes. it comes down to. And I think that, once again, when you're analyzing your supply chain, you have to analyze that part of it too. Mm. You know, am I am I working with people who are treating their workers fairly? Is there a fair living wage happening? And again, it comes from a central place in the company, which is like, how can we behave better? Yes, exactly. I was you know? talking this morning on, I got cut off right in the middle of the damn thing, so the internet <laughs> went down, but I was on Five Live with Adrian Charles and, you know, he was asking, well, you know, <clears throat> is it about wages? And, you know, the CEO's getting paid this and should we be having minimum wages? So, of course, but actually it comes from an internal, cultural, ethical belief, doesn't yeah. it? And that invariably starts from the top of the people getting together and saying, what sort of business do we want to create? And do I want to be a wealthy bastard who doesn't look after the people? Or actually, is there a symbiosis across all parts of our business that actually says this is just decent human behavior, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And it's, a, it's, a, it's being in a state of empathy as well, right? I think it's yeah. incredibly important as a, a word company. often. You know, it's yeah. really funny that word gets used time and time again when I'm interviewing people. Yeah. There's guys on the kind of empathy, empathy. Yeah. It's beautiful, isn't it? We need that. We need more of that. Finally, 
Wonderful. I ask all my guests, where would you like to see your industry if the kindness economy in, in say, five or ten years? God, it's a big question. Mm. Um, I, I think it's just across the board change. It's an industry that needs to have a radical overhaul. Yeah. It needs to be more transparent. It needs to behave in environmentally in better ways. It needs to behave more ethically, treat its workers fairly. You know, and then there's the other side of it. It's just the consumer needs to become more switched on to, you know, kind of like the bad behavior brands starting also to buy more sustainably. So I think it's just across the board, everything just needs to, it just needs an overhaul. So we need more and more of these conversations, more and more of these pushing, more and more and more and more. Thank you, Ezzard. That was an absolutely wonderful chat. Thank you very much. Thank you. I love your cardigan. Thank you. It's nice. I got that in green. I got it in the olive. We're about to do some very cool new colors. Lovely, lovely. Edzard and his sheep co-founders are incredibly thoughtful. Every single detail of their business, from the complex technology at the heart of it to those methane-producing sheep, was considered. And that level of attention to detail, that care, is what makes their brand so modern. For years, the fashion industry has been driven by a rip-off that design and get it out pronto, quick mentality. And it's created businesses with thousands of ever-changing stock lines and a lot of waste. Sheep Inc. is the absolute antidote to all that. Painstaking in their approach, they are creating clothes that give back more than they take, and they last, as Edzard said, a generation. Their philosophy is one that I often talk about. It's an inch wide and a mile deep. It's very different from a mile wide and an inch deep where we've been in the fashion industry. Creating a business like Sheep Inc. starts with psychology. Yours around what you're trying to create and your people's around what brand they are buying into. It's a two-way process and it must start within each one of us as buyers if we're really going to change things. Join me next week when I'll be talking to Anna Blackburn, the first woman to head the jeweller Beaverbrooks in its 100-plus year history. Anna knows something that I'm very passionate about. Sis, if you become part of the kindness economy, it makes you more profitable, not less. In fact, listen to this. She's more than doubled profits at Beaverbrooks in just seven years. And she's done that by really investing in her people. Find out more next week on The Kindness Economy with me, Mary Portas. Mm-hmm.